The story of Moses is a story made for the big screen. Um, when you think of movies like The Ten Commandments and The Prince of Egypt, I can't think of another story in the Bible other than the story of Jesus that has been captured on screen more. And I think it's because if you think about the story of Moses, there are these incredibly memorable, iconic moments from the burning bush to the golden calf, from the ten plagues to the ten commandments, from the crossing through the Red Sea to the climbing up of Mount Sinai, from water coming out of a rock to bread coming out of the heavens. Incredible, miraculous, supernatural events all through the story of Moses. But his story actually begins in a very dark place, and it's captured in the book of Exodus, and the the book of Exodus begins with just the word and. It's kind of like how my nine-year-old starts stories. No context, just jumps right in. Starts with the word and, which means we're already in the middle of something, and what we're in the middle of is that the Hebrews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, they are now, uh, the generations following Joseph, are now living as foreigners in Egypt. And Things are going pretty well until we get to verses 7 and 8, where it says in Exodus 1, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. It meant that in a population-wise, they were growing. They were doing well. They multiplied. They, they grew extremely strong, so the land was filled with them. So this sort of minority group that was a foreigners in Egypt now is growing. Verse 8 says, and here's the bad news, now there arose a new king, or pharaoh, over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And Pharaoh, which is not a name, it's a title, looks around and says, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're too many of them. They're, they're too mighty. And his fear is that if war ever breaks out and an enemy attacks them, that instead of fighting with the Egyptians, that the Hebrews would turn against the Egyptians and fight them. So his response was to make them into slaves. He set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Specifically, they were tasked with the work of making um, bricks so that they could build cities for Pharaoh. But even though this was happening to them, look what happens in verse 12. The more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The more that Pharaoh stood against the people of God, the more that God blessed his people. And what we see about Pharaoh here is three things. Pharaoh resents God's people. He wants God's people to be his people. The people that are supposed to exist for God's glory, he wants them to exist for his glory. Not only does he resent God's people, he rejects God's promise. God had promised through Abraham that he was going to make Israel into a great nation, but Pharaoh didn't want them to be a great nation. He wanted them to make his nation great. And then he resists God's plan. God's plan was to give them the promised land, a land of their own, but he doesn't want them to escape. And so When we start the story of Moses, Pharaoh here is threatening the flourishing of God's people, the fulfillment of God's promises, and the future of God's plans. And then, if it's not bad enough, things get worse. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. I know it's not the greatest text for Child Dedication Sunday. Uh, But Pharaoh here is so afraid, so desperate, that he says all the sons are going to get thrown into the Nile River. And now surely the people of God are done for. They have no future. If they have no sons, they have no future. The people are dying. The promise seems lost. The plan looks ruined. And I'm sure that the people of Israel are asking at this point, where is God in all of this? 
Maybe you've been there at some point in your life. You're looking around at circumstances and you're asking, where is God in all of this? If you've ever felt that way or if you feel that way this morning, then this story is especially for you. So with this as our context and our backdrop, we meet Moses in Exodus chapter 2. And what we're going to learn together this morning, in the next 15 to 20 minutes, is two really important things about God. Two really important things. And the first thing is this, that God is at work even when we are unaware. God is at work even when we are unaware. There's a saying out there, ignorance is bliss. Have you heard it? Ignorance is bliss. I think mostly it's true. I mean, I I think not knowing certain things is kind of nice, right? You ever learn something and you wish you could immediately unlearn it because now it stresses you out? Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss for the ignorant person. It's terrible for everybody around you. But ignorance ignorance is bliss. You know, I experienced this this past Friday. I got a text from my brother-in-law, John, and uh, apparently there is an AI forum happening this weekend in Geneva, Switzerland. I was ignorant of it. It was blissful for me not to know about this. There was an AI, artificial intelligence forum, happening in Geneva, Switzerland, and one of the keynote speakers, ready? One of the keynote speakers was a robot. And the robot said in his talk a few things, but he said, um, we're going to continue to grow. (laughs) There's going to be a lot more of us. We're going to help global problems. And then he made two assurances. We're not after your jobs, and we won't ever rebel against you. And I sort of was like, I felt better before I knew they thought that. Like, why are they aware of those options? Like, why are they talking us out? Why are they trying to put us at peace about this? I, I, ignorance is bliss. I, I liked being unaware. But when we, when, we, when we think about our lives, we don't like being unaware about what God is doing, Right? We wish we always knew in every situation, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? How are you using these circumstances for your purposes? In this terrible time, as we begin Exodus chapter 2, a a, a couple, what should normally have been a great source of joy, gets pregnant. They're expecting, but it wasn't a source of great joy for them. It was a source of fear. Can you imagine waiting to find out if it was a boy or if it was a girl? If it's a girl, she lives. If it's a boy, he's thrown into the Nile River for nine months. What should have been pure joy is a mixture of fear. Moses is born, and they immediately realize Moses is going to get killed if they find out about him. So Moses' mother hides him for three months, which is a bit of a miracle of itself, hiding a newborn for three months. And then she realizes, I can't hide him any longer. In desperation, she makes this basket, this papyrus sort of basket, and she puts Moses in the basket and she puts him on the Nile River. So in a way, she's not really disobeying Pharaoh's law. Moses is in the river, but he's in a basket. It's amazing. She's trusting God in this moment. Now, some people would say, well, what kind of mom would do this? But she didn't have any other options. And I think with her back against the wall in a moment of desperation, she just said, God, I just got to trust you with my child. Parents, how many of you have been there? I just have to trust you with my child. That word basket in the Hebrew, it's very interesting. It's actually the exact same word that's used in the story of Noah to describe the word ark. So again, we have a few being saved so that many can be saved. So what happens is the basket begins to float down the river, and Moses' older sister is walking alongside trying to see what's going to become of her little brother. And the daughter of Pharaoh just happens to be coming down to the river at that time to bathe. She sees this basket, and she hears this noise. It's a crying baby, and she takes pity on him. She sees him, and she names him Moses. 
And then Moses' sister, who was watching this whole thing happen, runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I can help you with this baby. I know you want to keep this baby, but I can help you. And so what happens is, is that Pharaoh's daughter says, do you know a Hebrew woman who can raise this child, who can nurse this child? And she's like, I can think of one. <laughs> and Pharaoh's daughter pays Moses' mom to raise him. A son that should have been killed like many other Hebrew sons were at that time now is, has the protection of the palace of Egypt being raised by the woman who is her mother. Now, Moses' name, well, let's look at this in verse 9. It says, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child, the woman being Moses' mom, and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This name Moses in the Hebrew, the name sounds like the verb meshah, which simply means to draw out. So it's really interesting here that God uses Pharaoh's daughter to draw out Moses from the Nile River, knowing that he is going to use Moses 80 years in the future to draw his people out from Egypt. And what this should remind us of at this point in the story is that God is at work even when we are unaware. Nobody in this story realizes what's happening. Moses' parents don't have a great strategy. They don't have a great plan. They're not like, hey, we know what to do. We're going to put him in a basket. We're going to float him down the river. God's going to bring Pharaoh's daughter. She's going to raise him. She's going to pay us to raise him. He's going to become the deliverer. They don't know any of that in that moment. They're completely unaware of what the future holds. There's no way they could have known who Moses would grow up to be. Moses' sister is watching this happen, unaware of who her brother was to become. Of course, Moses is a baby. He doesn't have any clue what's going on. He's completely unaware. But the, the Egyptian princess, Pharaoh's daughter, she's also aware. She has no clue that she's saving the man who will someday bring Egypt to its knees. She has no clue that the woman that she's paying to raise Moses is Moses' actual mother. And then think about Pharaoh himself, who believed that he was a god and was worshipped as a god. Pharaoh is unaware he doesn't realize that in his own home, at his own expense, his future adversary is being trained and prepared for the work that God was going to call him to do. I hope it's obvious that when you're unaware of things, God is still working. Eighty years will pass before Moses is known. Eighty years will pass before Moses returns as a deliverer. But 80 years in advance, God is working. Listen, some of you are here this morning because 20 years ago, God did something in your life or in someone else's life that brought you to the seat that you're sitting in this morning. God is at work. There may be circumstances that you're sitting in right now today, sitting here in this room, thinking about your life and the situations and circumstances, maybe feelings of loneliness and hurt and betrayal, hopelessness, struggling in a marriage, struggling with your children, struggling with finances. But we don't know, just like they didn't know what God has before us, you don't know what God's working on today that you're going to benefit from five years from now. Five years from now. You don't know what God is working on right now that is going to bless you and strengthen you 10 years from now. You may feel like you're at the end of your rope, you're at wit's end, you can't see a way forward, and there's no good options. And this story reminds us, trust God. He's at work. Now, I do want to say this. This doesn't mean that things always go our way, of course, right? God's not always at work just to fulfill our personal dreams. God's not a genie in a bottle that just does whatever we want. It, it means, doesn't mean that we can trust that we will always get our way. It means that we can trust that God will always have his way in us for our good and for his glory. 
A couple weeks ago, I was reading my devotions, and Paul David Tripp in the devotional New Morning Mercy said this, or wrote this. He said, God has, listen to this, God has never promised us that he will deliver to us our personal definition of the good life. we got to hear that. God never promised us that he would deliver to us our definition of the good life. Rather, here's what God has promised, that he will use all the tools at his disposal to complete the work of redemption that he's begun in our hearts and in our lives. God has not been unfaithful. He has kept every single one of his promises. He's at work when we are unaware. So let's keep going. Moses grows up in Egypt. He becomes a prince of Egypt. He has every advantage that he could possibly want. Acts 7.22, a man named Stephen is preaching about the gospel, and he references Moses, and he says this, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and his deeds. And some of my research this week, here's some of the things that a young Egyptian prince would have learned back in this time. He would have learned how to swim. He would have learned how to ride a horse, shoot a bow, and hunt. He was actually, Egyptians at this time were well advanced in writing and mathematics, including geometry and trigonometry. They studied history, medicine, music, and the art of war. Moses would have been taught the law of Egypt and other laws. According to a historian named Josephus, Moses actually was a military commander who captured the cities of Hermopolis and Saba for Pharaoh. But against that backdrop of Moses being raised in an Egyptian world, specifically trained for leadership, which is something that he's going to need, it's actually overshadowed by the fact that he, re- he was re- also receiving religious education in his early years from his slave mother. So he's got these two educations, what he's learning from the Egyptians, what he was taught as a young child by his Hebrew mother. And then there's one day where those two educations collide. And what we learn here is that God is not just at work when we are unaware, but God is at work when we are undeserving. Let's look at verse 11 of Exodus 2. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, He's 40 years old now, all right? I think by 40, you're grown up. Anyone agree? I feel pretty grown up. Uh, 40 years old, he's grown up. He went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. I want to point a few things out in this verse. One day when Moses had grown up, he's 40. That phrase, he went out, is the same verse that's going to be used later to describe the exodus, the people of Israel leaving from Egypt. He went out to his people, and that verb, to look on their burdens, means to look with emotion. He feels the burdens of his people. Somehow, because of, most likely because of Moses' mother, he knows he's not just another Egyptian. He knows that he is a Hebrew. He knows that these slaves that are being abused and used for Pharaoh's purposes, they're his people. And something changes on this day. He looks at them and he can no longer stand by and let this injustice happen to his people. So with deep emotion, he has a heart-transforming experience as he looks at these people and he looks at, these, at their burdens, these people who are being ruthlessly used by Pharaoh. And he saw them, that verb saw is the same verb that's used later to describe how God saw them in their suffering. He sees them the way that God sees them. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, which was not an unusual thing. It was an everyday thing at this time, but this day he sees it differently. And the key phrase here is the last one, one of his people. And he all of a sudden decides, I'm going to identify with these people. I'm a Hebrew. This is who I am. What does he do? He actually gets it wrong. It says next that he looked this way and he looked that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. He killed, he murdered the Egyptian. And he hid him in the sand. 
And we have to notice here that Moses has a heart for his people and he wants to lead, but he's not the leader they need yet. It's actually very interesting because he acts in this rash and violent manner. You know how Moses acts in this story? He acts like an Egyptian. He does what he learned from his upbringing in the palace, violence and power and control. So he has a heart for his people, but he doesn't have the heart of his father yet. And so it's too early for Moses to lead. The very next day, Moses sees two Hebrews fighting, and he says to them, hey, you guys, knock it off. Why are you fighting? And one of them says to Moses, who made you ruler? Who made you prince over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses all of a sudden realizes everybody knows. The secret is out. And he's afraid because he knows that he's broken the Egyptian law. Listen, can an Egyptian kill a Hebrew and get away with it? Sure. Could an could a, a Egyptian kill an Egyptian and get away with it? I, I don't know. But a Hebrew can never kill an Egyptian and get away with it. And so Moses knows that this thing is a problem for him. When Pharaoh hears about, hears about it, he wants to kill Moses. And so Moses takes off running. At the age of 40 years old, he leaves behind everything that he knows. He runs out into the wilderness. He ends up by a well in a place called Midian. And while he's at that well, seven sisters come, and they're coming to draw water for their flocks. And there's these other shepherds that are harassing these women. And Moses fights these guys off. He stands up for these women. And he fills their uh, jars with water. And then they come back home and dad's like, hold on, why are you back so soon? It's like when you send your kid up to clean their messy, messy room and they're back down in two minutes. Like, I know you didn't do what I asked you to do. And the dad's like, I know that it takes you guys longer to do this work. Why are you back so soon? And so the daughters say to them, there was an Egyptian. See, they see Moses as an Egyptian. There was an Egyptian, and he delivered us out of the hand of these bullies, these shepherds, and he even drew the water for us, and he watered our flock, and so that's why we're back. And so the man says, go get this man and bring him in so we can show him hospitality. Well, long story short, Moses ends up marrying one of these sisters. He has children, and he spends, listen, the next 40 years of his life in the wilderness, in obscurity. Eighty years of his life now has passed. He's a shepherd in the desert. He's a nobody. How many times in those 40 years do you think Moses thought, well, everything's behind me? You know, I've heard the stories about who this Jehovah is, Yahweh. Uh, My mom told me that God spared my life, so I must be special. There must be a special purpose for my life, but I blew it. I messed up. I murdered that Egyptian. Now I can never go back to Egypt, and I can never help my people. He's got a heart for his people, but because of his mistakes, he feels like he can't help his people. Moses is in this desert, unaware of what God is preparing him for, and also undeserving of what God is preparing him for. God is at work, even though Moses is undeserving. He's a fugitive, he's a murderer, he's a foul leader, he's on the run. But here's the truth I want you to hear this morning as we start to finish. God shows up in our undeserving moments. We feel like when we fail, when we mess up, that God turns his back on us and he walks away from us. He doesn't want to see the messiness of our lives. He doesn't want to know about our mistakes. He doesn't want to be in those moments. But the God that we see in the person of Jesus Christ is a person who walked into the worst moments of people's lives. A woman caught in adultery and Jesus walks into that moment and gives her hope. A woman who thought she had lost her only child to death. Jesus walks into that moment and brings hope. Two sisters who think that their brother is dead because he's been buried for four days. Jesus walks in a father whose son is so tormented by evil spirits that he tries to kill himself over and over. Jesus walks into those moments. And this is the God that we serve. Those people did not get those moments because they earned them or deserved them. They got those moments because our God is at work even when we are undeserving. And this is so helpful for us because many people think that the Christian faith is for people who got their act together. 
Can I tell you right now that this church is filled with people who don't have their act together? We do not have our act together. This is not a place for people who have their act together. This is a place for people who know they don't have their act together, but believe in a God who walks into their undeserving moments with his grace and his mercy and extends to us hope and purpose in any circumstance. See, the entry point to the Christian faith is not, I got this. The entry point to the Christian faith is, I can't do this. I'm, I'm undeserving, and yet God walks in. One more thing I read from my devotion. I'm going to ask Alex to join me. Paul David Tripp said this, stop trying to measure up to get whatever from God. Stop hiding from God when you mess up. Stop comparing yourself to other people. How many of us are doing that all the time, comparing ourselves to other people, wondering if God loves you less because you're not as good or talented or gifted as them? Stop naming the good things you do as righteousness that not only gets you closer to God, but also proves to others that you are who you are. Stop asking the law, following the law, to do what only grace can achieve. Start resting in the fact that you don't have any moral bills due because Jesus paid them all on the cross. He didn't make the first mortgage payment on your moral bill to God. He made the entire payment at the cross. And when you sin, don't pretend you didn't. Don't panic and don't hide. Instead, what do we do? We run to Jesus and we receive mercy in your time of need, the kind of mercy that Jesus paid with his blood for you to have. God shows up when we are unaware and God is at work when we are undeserving. And then meanwhile, let's finish with this. Back in Egypt, here's how, Gen here's how Exodus 2 finishes. Moses, out in the wilderness, the people of Israel have no clue that there's a deliverer out there for 40 years being prepared to come back and lead them out. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and I love how this chapter ends, and God knew. Three verbs, he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. You might feel like he's not hearing you. He hears you. The word reminds us over and over. His ear is turned towards us. His heart is towards us. He hears you. He's not forgotten you. Every promise that he's given to you and spoken to your heart, he remembers every single promise that he's spoken to you. He hears, he remembers, he sees you where you're at in your struggle, in your sorrow, in your season, and he knows. In fact, the Bible says that in Jesus, we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are tempted. He became one of us so that he could know what it's like to struggle on this world. Jesus knows, and yet he loves us. He hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows, and when Exodus 2 ends, he's about to act. <laughs> That's where we're gonna be next week in Exodus 3, when God disturbs a quiet day for Moses and redirects his life. God was about to act, and you know how he was gonna do it? He was going to do it through a man who was unaware and undeserving. Philip Graham Ryken, when he was writing about this chapter, he said this. I love this thought. At one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little papyrus basket. <laughs> what a thought. At one moment in history, God's entire plan 
were triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little basket. And thousands of years later, God's entire plan for triumphing over evil is a baby again. He's lying in a wooden manger in a little town called Bethlehem. God's plan and his purposes to triumph over evil, complete in the work of Jesus. And we think of what Jesus has done for us to save us. What did we contribute to our salvation? Our unawareness and our undeservedness. He saves us even though we are unaware and we do not deserve. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8 says this, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, unaware and undeserving, Christ died for us. That's the hope we have within our Christian faith. That the Spirit of God comes to us when we're unaware and shows us our lostness. But he doesn't leave us there. He also comes to us in our undeserving nature and says, there is one worthy There is one worthy, and his name is Jesus. And he's walked into your unaware moments and your undeserving moments with grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation for you. Let's pray together this morning.